Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi, my name is Eugene Rusin, and I'm a second-year student at Yale Law School. I'm joined today by Professor Jim Grijalva, Friedman Professor of Law at the University of North Dakota School of Law. Professor Grijalva teaches courses related to Indian country environmental law, federal Indian law, native natural resources, tribal law, environmental law, administrative law, and property. Since 1996, he has worked with over 50 Indian tribes across the country as the director of the Tribal Environmental Law Project, which he founded as a component of the Northern Plains Indian Law Center. Professor Grijalva has written on numerous environmental issues affecting Indian country, including a book entitled Closing the Circle, Environmental Justice in Indian Country, published in 2008. He has served as a technical services contractor for the American Indian Environmental Office of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and as an environmental law trainer for EPA's Office of Environmental Justice. He was the senior Fulbright Scholar for Aboriginal Legal and Resource Rights at the University of Alberta in 2009. Jim, it's a pleasure to have you here today uh, and to have this conversation. Thanks for having me, Gene. All right. Well, let's get started with your way of having come to this subject in the first place. How did you get interested? I think it started in childhood, although I didn't recognize it as such. My father was a dentist for the Indian Health Service, and we were transferred around anywhere between three months in one place to two years uh, from either an Indian reservation or an Indian Pueblo, say, for an example, in New Mexico, uh, sometimes into cities that were near Indian reservations, like Rapid City, South Dakota. And uh, that experience was, I, I think, more impactful than I realized at the time. Uh, living in places where there was extreme poverty, where there weren't a lot of opportunities uh, for education and for economic uh, uh, prosperity. But uh, as I got older, I got more interested in the outdoors because I was interested in things like mountain climbing and kayaking, rafting, and uh, started to spark uh, a real concern for conservation in the environment. And I uh, ended up at Lewis and Clark Law in the environmental program and uh, took a class on Native Natural Resources. It was the first one ever offered in the country by who would uh, the, the two people that would eventually come to write the, the casebook on that subject. And uh, that really interested me, Eugene. And then um, I, I ended up with a private law firm in Seattle, Washington, practicing mostly commercial litigation in the environmental realm. But one of the attorneys I worked for had been a Bureau of Indian Affairs attorney when the National Environmental Policy Act was adopted. And he became the local expert on NEPA's application to Indian development. And so we started to develop a practice of representing Indian tribes doing various environmental work, sometimes building environmental capacity. In one case, representing a tribe, the Puyallup Tribe of Indians in Tacoma, Washington, in a major Superfund site where they were a natural resource trustee trying to restore their lands, and particularly the salmon and the shellfish that they had depended on for thousands of years. And so uh, it, it really became a fascination for me of a chance to do good work in the in environment, but also work that, that benefited people in a, in a way that was a little more, frankly, spiritual 
than just the fact that I wanted to protect the environment from pollution. These were folks whose generations had grown up with a cultural tradition of, say, a relationship to the salmon. And so here was an opportunity for me to do good environmental work that benefited people in a real uh, um, personal way that, that I identified with. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And in then coming to teaching law, how did you incorporate those experiences as uh, a practitioner into the way that you taught? One of the, one, I was most excited, to, Eugene, to make the transition from law practice to teaching because I, I fundamentally wanted to be a teacher. I think it's the best job in the world, and it's frankly, I think, one of the most important jobs. Good, good teachers have inspired me and inspired probably everyone uh, who is listening at one time or another. But the, the challenge in uh, private law practice, of course, is that you do the work that the clients offer you, and you don't have time to explore the interesting issues on the margins. So uh, even when I was doing interesting work for the Puyallup tribe, there were lots of issues we simply didn't have time to work on. And so the, the beauty, of course, of the academy is I was free to write on any issue that interested me. And um, at the same time, one of the things I recognized from practice was not every tribe had the, uh, the financial ability to hire expert counsel. They, they simply didn't. If they had a lawyer, that lawyer was doing hundreds of things and couldn't become an expert in environmental law. And most of the tribes were small and didn't have the resources to hire an environmental lawyer. So I thought, well, here's a chance where I could essentially decide for myself to do pro bono service work in Indian country. And I thought that had a nice synergy with my teaching in federal Indian law and related courses and also with the service component. So here I was providing service as as I'm expected to do as an academic and also, of course, as a lawyer. And I was doing it almost entirely pro bono, but I had the luxury of choosing my clients and choosing the work that I did. And so sometimes I worked for local tribes. Uh, uh, You know, we have five recognized tribes in North Dakota. Uh, There are a number on the western edge of Minnesota that are not far from where I live. Um, But then I would get phone calls because of my my reputation and being at conferences, talking with people, et cetera, get phone calls from around the country. And sometimes that would be a consultation that would end with the phone call. Sometimes it ended up being multiple calls, and sometimes it ended up me doing hours or days or months of work with a tribe that really had a pressing issue that needed to be addressed. Hmm, fantastic. Now, has there been, in your experience, a shift in the willingness of tribes to litigate on the federal level? Uh, I've heard you speak in some context of the chilling effect of litigation. Uh, yeah, any thoughts on that? Well, the, the, it, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to communicate to a tribal client, and, and here's the conundrum. At the lower court level, meaning at the federal trial court and at the appellate court level, and Indian law is a federal, inherently a federal law thing, so we don't see many state court decisions. Uh, tribes have been incredibly successful in partnership with EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, at protecting their environment. Uh, and in fact, in most cases, those, those, uh, li- those, that litigation ends up being litigation against the EPA directly. So that a tribe proposes water quality standards under the Clean Water Act, EPA approves them, and then someone challenges the EPA approval. So it's actually not even a a lawsuit against the tribe. So the tribe's involved, but the tribe doesn't have to run the show. It isn't isn't investing the same amount of resources. And then the beauty for the tribe is that administrative law deference that courts pay to EPA often benefits both the, the EPA but also the tribe. 
So in those cases, and this is why I think working in the cooperative federalist model, that is where tribes partner with EPA rather than go it alone, that provides significant benefits to tribes that insulate them in a measure from what I see in the Supreme Court as a, a direct attack on the scope of tribal sovereignty. So the, the, the scary thing, of course, for a tribe is for those tribes that develop environmental programs and are challenged by non-Indians, either companies or individuals or sometimes by states, if those cases get to the Supreme Court, it's a very dangerous case because there's a very good chance the Supreme Court is going to say, no, you don't have ju tribal jurisdiction over the non-Indian for the purposes of, of protecting the environment. But interestingly, Eugene, none of the significant, say, dozen Indian country environmental cases, none of those has the Supreme Court accepted cert. And all of them, the loser has sought cert. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're not quite sure why the Supreme Court hasn't taken one of those yet. So they haven't really addressed the question. The Supreme Court hasn't addressed the question. So if I come back to, you know, in the Tribal Environmental Law Project, if I have a tribal council that asks me, you know, what's the risk of litigation, um, it's, a, it's a challenge to explain to them that the, the risk is significant. The likelihood of winning is fairly high at the trial level and at the appellate level. If we get to the Supreme Court, there's a real chance of a loss but the likelihood of getting to the Supreme Court is quite low, hmm. at least in most cases. Now, to, to try to explain that to a lay client and to say essentially, well, most tribes win up to the point where you get to the Supreme Court, it's difficult, I think, for some tribal governments to get the distinction between, okay, so what's the difference between the Eighth Circuit and the Supreme Court? Mm -hmm. What's the difference between the Tenth Circuit and the Supreme Court? And why should I care about a case in the Tenth Circuit or the Ninth Circuit if I'm, you know, say in North Dakota in the Eighth Circuit? Mm. So I, I don't know that there's a willingness necessarily of tribes to litigate, but certainly the tribes that really want to exercise their sovereignty they, they always are confronted with the risk that if I exercise my sovereignty, then that means I'm trying to control somebody or something. And that means that potentially they're not going to be happy. And if they're not happy, then there's always the possibility that they might sue. Mm -hmm. Very, uh, very interesting and very relevant to a discussion of the EPA's role in all of this. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the key points in the history of how the EPA has engaged with tribal communities. You know, I wrote an article um, in 2006 on the origins of EPA's Indian policy. Um, it was uh, published in a, in a Kansas uh, law journal. The, the, the reason that I got into the, the, the question, so in 1984, EPA adopted an Indian policy. It, uh, it actually had, in 1980, adopted a, a precursor to that, but it was right at the end of a presidential administration, and so nobody really paid attention to it because a new president came in and there was a different focus. But in 1984, EPA adopted this written Indian policy, which now is not uncommon for federal agencies, but at the time, EPA was the first federal agency to have such a policy. Even the Bureau of Indian Affairs didn't have sort of an official policy on how they were going to approach various Indian issues. So um, as I was doing the research, and I happened uh, to have the good fortune to be friends with, both at a personal and professional level, with Lee Price, who was an EPA attorney who actually authored the Indian policy, as well as a 1980 precursor, as well as a 1978 sort of policy memorandum that grew into that. 
And Lee uh, unfortunately passed on uh, prematurely a few years after uh, a discussion we had where he, uh, he essentially handed me his personal papers. And as I went through those papers and saw literally the original memos with handwritten comments about let's change this on the policy or let's add that, I started to realize that, that EPA really had been quite bold in the 70s. EPA was created by a presidential reorganization authored by President Nixon uh, in uh, 1970. And EPA really had no prior experience with Indian country or Indian law with with a couple of caveats. But what it saw was Supreme Court decisions that said things like tribes are inherent, have inherent sovereign power. Uh, States have limited power in Indian country. Uh, The president was calling for self-determination as the nation's Indian policy. Congress was passing laws allowing tribes to implement their own education and housing programs instead of the federal government doing it. And so here we have this sort of brand new agency in the early 70s looking around and seeing that the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches were all talking about tribes as governments with power over their territories. And EPA is looking for partners to help them implement these new environmental laws. And of course, Congress was expecting that to be the states. But federal Indian law said that states had limited authority in Indian country unless the Congress said otherwise. And there was nothing in the original environmental laws that said states had the power to implement these programs. So EPA sort of looked around, realized that if we're going to protect the whole country, not just parts of it, we're going to have to look to a local partner in Indian country. And lo and behold, the Indian tribe is a government that has governmental power inherently. Let's partner with them. And so uh, I, I wrote this article uh, that, that uh, and I, I also teach administrative law, and I don't recall if you mentioned that at the start, but, you know, a fundamental aspect of administrative law is that federal agencies have only the power Congress has given them. So if EPA has a great idea, but it doesn't have the authority to do it, then that's an invalid action because they didn't have that authority, even though it's a good idea. Well, in the 70s, There was nothing in the environmental laws that allowed EPA to treat tribes in a state-like fashion to allow them to implement environmental programs. But lo and behold, in 1974, EPA decides that tribes are going to be able to run a certain part of the Clean Air Act program. And in 19, that was in 1974, excuse me, in 1975, EPA did the same thing with pesticides. And it said, if you're a commercial pesticide applicator in Indian country, you have to get a certification from the tribe because the state has no authority to do that. Now, those were two small programs. But what was fascinating about those decisions, Eugene, is that there was nothing in the law that authorized EPA to do that. Mm -hmm. But they went ahead and did it anyway. And I characterize that in my article as incredibly bold actions, right? This is an agency that knows what authority it has, and yet it moved forward. But what was fascinating, and I think this is what gave EPA the impetus in the 80s to follow up with an 84 Indian policy, is that in 1977, Congress amended the Clean Air Act, and it codified the Indian program that EPA had created out of whole cloth in 1974. And then in 1978, Congress amended the Pesticide Act and codified the 1975 program reference that EPA had made to commercial applicators certified by Indian tribes. 
So now the agency has essentially been told by the boss, you're going the right direction. This is the thing you should do. So that was 1977, 1978, 1980, lo and behold, here comes the first Indian policy adopted by an assistant deputy administrator, the second in command, right as the administrations were changing. But it basically said the way to approach Indian country is to work with tribes as our governmental partners. Several years later, President Reagan, 1983, calls for a renewed effort at tribal self-determination, and he calls on all of his federal agencies to implement Indian programs to treat tribes essentially as governmental sovereigns. Well, EPA already had a track record. So while every other federal agency was scrambling around to find something to tell the president that they were working on, EPA had a 100-page discussion paper that it had just completed about the issue. And five months, six months later, EPA is adopting a formal Indian policy, the first one in the federal system. And so now President Reagan has on his desk an Indian policy. It says EPA is going to go protect tribal governments and tribal uh, territories via partnerships with tribal governments. And so it, it really is sort of a fascinating history about how an EPA, an agency that wasn't really charged with implementing programs in Indian country, becomes sort of the, the leader, if you will, in the federal government at protecting tribes' interests. And then, uh, lo and behold, in 86, in 87, and in 1990, Congress amends the other federal statutes to treat tribes as states, to essentially authorize EPA to implement those programs in a way where they partnered with tribes to do exactly the same kinds of things that, they, that EPA does with states set policy standards, set uh, um, expectations for regulated industries, monitor those industries, monitor the quality of the environment, and take appropriate action as necessary. Mm -hmm. And how did the environmental justice movement influence how the EPA was addressing all of these issues? Well, it's interesting. In my book, I, I argue that basically the environmental justice movement, which really takes hold at the end of the 1980s and the early 1990s, uh, EPA uh, first opened an office called the Office of Environmental Equity in 92 and off opened its environmental justice office, which it still has today in, in 1994. Well, EPA had been doing environmental justice work since 1973 in Indian country, they just didn't call it that because that wasn't the term that everybody used. So that 1980 Indian policy that I mentioned earlier, one of the things that the introduction says is that because the programs as they were originally designed did not cover Indian country, it created the possibility that there was a regulatory gap in Indian country that resulted in a disproportionate impact on Indian people that EPA said was unacceptable. And so the policy paper says we have to do something, a special alternative response, because our programs as designed fail to protect Indian people in the way that they protect everybody else, and that's unacceptable. So that was really the language that 10 years later the environmental justice movement begins to use mostly for inner-city black communities, Latino communities, farm workers, etc. Although what's often forgotten in the literature on environmental justice is there were indigenous people involved on the front lines in that effort because they realized just as much as any other person of color that the environment was integral to their health and that people were ignoring the impacts that were unique to them. 
that the you know the the environmental movement per se was not necessarily focused on the unique aspects uh, affecting indigenous people. The 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 example uh, I often give is that uh, you know uh, uh, many Indian people eat a lot more fish by volume or weight than the average American, and so a low amount of con- of con- uh, contamination in a fish might not be of the concern for a normal or average American. But for an Indian person, uh, an Asian person, somebody who eats a lot more fish, that could be a very serious health concern. The other thing to think about uh, that's more relevant uh, to our conversation is sacred sites or uh, in Minnesota, there's a tremendous amount of interest in harvesting wild rice. Well, if the rivers and the lakes are contaminated and the wild rice picks up that contamination, then that affects the health and safety of indigenous peoples in ways that are different and more significant than the majority society. Mm. And looking from that history to more recent developments, uh, how have government actions recently and attempts to pass certain bills, for instance, in particular, reflected on the development of environmental justice concerns for tribal communities? Well, unfortunately, the push since 2001 with the terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers has really generated a significant amount and an important interest in domestic energy production. Um, and I certainly am a fan of heat in North Dakota in the winter, uh, <laughs> of energy, you know, electrification of the country. Uh, certainly, uh, we have to realize in the environmental realm that, that you know, humans have an impact and always have an impact, and we consume resources. And, and that's not the concern, but the, the concern that I think is more relevant to your question recently is this dramatic push for increased development of natural resources, energy resources in the country, without a a corresponding concern for the environmental impacts, the the, the habitat degradation, the pollution that that generates from that. And and so while I have no problem with using resources for the important needs that we have, I'd like to see us be a little bit better in our energy consumption. We, We waste a tremendous amount of energy in the United States, and we could probably conserve more and therefore need less. But for the energy that we do need, I think we need to be careful now. It's 2015. We know better how to protect ourselves. For example, the hydraulic fracturing that's happening in North Dakota, that's a new technology that's been incredibly powerful in reaching oil deposits that weren't before accessible, which is fantastic from an economic perspective and also from an energy independence perspective. But we're not necessarily using the same energy to create technology to deal with the back end of the cycle, the the pollution impacts. So we're still injecting hazardous waste subsurface without a real recognition of whether or not that's safe or it has a long-term impact because we simply haven't been studying it. So we've we've focused on the short-term, the classic human interest, right? I need this today. I want it now. I can get it now. Uh, and I'll worry tomorrow about the, the, the problems that I've caused. 
And in, in, in our conversation, what's really interesting and relevant to the environmental justice and economic justice conversation is that tribes now, because of self-determination, are making decisions about development that in the past were always made by the federal government sometimes with consultation with the tribe and sometimes without. And sometimes, frankly, the federal government decided to develop resources over the objection of the tribe. Now what we're seeing is the tribe in the driver's seat, which is good. That's fantastic. From a tribal sovereignty advocate's perspective, the tribe should be making those decisions. But the historical context, Eugene, is that we have now put the tribes in the driver's seat without the resources to protect themselves. So it's, it's almost as if there are no airbags and no seatbelts and, frankly, no windshield in the car. And so we've said, here are the keys. Go, go at it. Good luck to you. And, of course, we, the, the majority society, are going to reap the benefit of the economic development that occurs. And we're not going to have to suffer the consequences of the pollution that's caused. And, and if that was the only issue, I'd still be concerned. But because if we go back to our, the start of our conversation, because the, the integrity of the environment is critical to the indigenous identity because the indigenous people's land-based ethic is such that their spiritual and cultural connection to the land is fundamental to who they are. It's not just a question of, well, this is polluted land, let's move elsewhere, or this river isn't drinkable anymore, let's import water. But that the, the places, right, the sacred sites, the rice, the, the fish, the, the things that make those people who they are, are suddenly impacted in a way that I think is more detrimental and more damaging than majority society understands and appreciates. Even though, it, you know, it's interesting. We have such a fascination in our society with, with things Indian. Uh, and, and we have a tendency to sort of freeze the culture of tribal uh, life, at, you know, in a, in, a, in a moment that Hollywood reminds us of, right, the horse culture on the plains or the bison running free. And, and, and that's not the goal that I have. My goal is to let tribes self-determine for themselves where they want to be, what their cultural connection is. But in my experience in, in 28 or 30 years in Indian country working with these 50-some tribes is that I've never once heard a, a, a tribal elder, uh, an individual, even a youngster say, oh, let's throw away this part of our culture and let's just go for the money. They mm -hmm. want economic development. They want the jobs, the tax revenues, et cetera. But none of them want to throw away who they are. That's, that's, that's an identity that they cling to. And so while we'll allow them, if you, it, well, I hope society will allow them to self-determine how do I, how do I be an Indian in 2015 where we have smartphones and we've got computers and we've got cars and we've got things that we never, our ancestors never imagined. And yet at the same time, I still want to pay respect to the history of my culture and to the ancient and sacred traditions that I have. And all of those relate in some way to the environmental quality of the land where they live. Hmm. It seems like one of the themes that informs what you've just described is this tension between tribal self-governance and self-determination on the one hand and enforcement capacity on the other in terms of how tribes can actually implement internal regulations. Is there a way of walking that divide? 
Well, that's a that's a great question. I think you you put your finger on it, Eugene. What what I wish if I could rewrite some of our history, I suppose we'd need a few more hours uh, <laughs> to to talk about it. But if if I could if I could say it in a brief way, I I wish that the federal government had begun in the fifties to develop tribal resources with the idea that they were going to help tribes to develop the internal governmental and business capacity to understand what it was that was going on. Rather than just hand royalty or lease payments over to the tribe and say, here's what you get for your coal or your oil or your timber, here's how you manage your forest, here's how you manage your coal, here's how you do a deal with a multinational corporation that is much more sophisticated than you've ever dealt with before. And then we could have had kids growing up with the opportunity to negotiate multi-million dollar deals so that they could, if they wanted to, play in any environment, and, and I mean that in the business context. And so nobody comes in and pulls anything over this tribe because we all understand exactly what's going on. We know what our interests are. We know how to negotiate to protect them. And at the same time, if we could have had a little bit more of the gee, you guys say that it's really important to protect the wild rice beds. So how can we do this oil deal in a way that makes sure that we protect the rice beds? Because we can't afford an oil spill in this area. Uh, we can't wait 400 years for the oil to disappear so that we can have rice again. So if that's the case, and, and I have a, a, a graduate uh, student um, who's asked me several times. She's a member of, of the Mandan Hidatsa Rikra Nation at Fort Berthold, which is in the middle of uh, North Dakota in the middle of the oil boom and the oil territory. And they're making a lot of money right now off of oil development. And she asked me on a regular basis, sort of, you know, what, what would be my solution? What, what do I want? And I, I usually throw the question back to her and say, well, it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. It's about what the tribe wants, right? And she says, well, okay, I get that. But, but tell me, you know, what, what, what should I want, if you will? And, and she means that in the most heartfelt way. What, what, what can I, as an individual member of this tribe, try to seek? And, and I say, I, I would like to see what, what I don't see happen in our federal government or our state governments, which is a frank conversation about where on the spectrum do we want the balance to lie between jobs and revenue and environmental protection. I don't like the way the media portrays this issue as it's either one or the other. I don't see why we can't have economic development that is environmentally sensitive. I think there are other countries in the world that have done that. I think it could probably be improved on. But I think particularly for indigenous nations, it would make a lot of sense to me that if one of the elements of, say, NEPA consideration was, how will this affect our culture in the future? How will this affect the sacred sites on our reservation? How will In other words, we're not just talking about impacts on spotted owls or on timber wolves. We're talking about what will this do to our future generations in the cultural context? And if the answer is there won't be any impact, then great, let's move 
move forward? If the answer is, well, we're not sure, we better do some more study, then let's do that study before we make the decision. And if the answer is, we think there's a real impact here, then I'd like to see what the Supreme Court, unfortunately, in NEPA never did, which is to say, let's do mitigation. Let's try to adjust this so that we don't have that problem in the future because we don't want our kids to go down the road of drug addiction or suicide or to feel hopeless or to feel torn between the world that they want to have and the world that they do have. So we're simply not going to develop in this manner. And if we can't develop in a way that's, that's sensitive or respectful of the culture, then we're not going to develop until we have the ability to do it that way. Hmm. Lately, specifically over the past few months, there have been some actions taken by both the president and by Congress that speak to some of these issues. On November 3rd, President Obama released a presidential memorandum titled Mitigating Impacts on Natural Resources from Development and Encouraging Related Private Investment, which I think uh, (laughs) (laughs) speaks to some of this stuff very directly. Um, And uh, somewhat earlier, the House passed the Native American Energy Act of 2015. how do these two relate to each other, and what would you say about them? Well, I, I think that, you know, uh, President Obama is perhaps a little more thoughtful in his attempt to balance that interest of economic development and I, I think Congress, unfortunately, in the Native American Energy Bill, and, and I'm a little concerned about this because I know that there are tribes, uh, particularly energy-rich tribes, and uh, tribal organizations that when they hear Congress say tribal self-determination, they immediately say, yes, this is a good thing, right? This is, this is the better language than, say, in the 50s when Congress said, let's terminate the relationship and let's make sure these Indian tribes stop being Indian tribes and become American citizens. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the language is correct in the sense that absolutely we want tribes to self-determine for themselves. But again, if we do that in a context where there's no recognition of the back end of the cycle, that there might be impacts that we didn't anticipate, and that those impacts are not necessarily, first of all, they're not easy to remedy. We, we know from history that once the spill gets out, right, once the, the, uh, the Exxon Valdez hits the reef, the oil gets out, it's very difficult to get it back. So let's not hit the reef in the first place. So the, what, what Obama, of course, I think was talking about is how can we encourage investment in a, uh, an environmentally appropriate way? It isn't that we should, you know, divest from from diamond mines in South Africa. It's that we should invest to the extent that we invest in in any more future fossil uh, fossil fuel development. That we do so with an, an eye toward number one weaning ourselves off that approach and moving into cleaner energy. But number two, with the idea that we're going to do it in a way that isn't going to present the risk, at least on an unacceptable risk, of that back end pollution, spill, explosion, the, the consequences that we know from history. And, and I, I mentioned a minute ago that, you know, the hydraulic fracturing in North Dakota is a fantastic technology to get access to a resource that otherwise wouldn't be accessible, wouldn't be valuable to anyone. We've known for a long time that the Bakken held a tremendous amount of oil, just nobody knew how to get to it. Mm. Now we've been very effective at getting to it. But I think this is kind of like a new a company that, that makes a new drug, right? There's a lot of energy into figuring out, is this effective for its intended use? 
there's not as much energy put into and how do we deal with the side effects or the byproducts or the unwanted or unanticipated consequences. So what what I'm afraid of, and and I I saw um, the testimony in the Senate Select Committee on the Native Energy Bill where – the, uh, the GAO, the, uh, the, uh, the Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs, several tribal officers representing tribal interests that were energy-related, all said, this is great, self-determination, let's move the federal government out of the way so we don't slow down these projects, and let's get, uh, let's get going. But nobody said, and at the same time, we'll make sure that we don't do damage that our seventh generation is going to regret. Now, maybe that's going to be the next conversation, and maybe they were thinking that as they said that. But what concerns me is that when I see the bill that's in front of the past the House, that's in front of the Senate right now, not only do they not talk about protecting the environment, but they actually talk about skipping or constraining or what sometimes is referred to as streamlining environmental review. So one of the fears, of course, of the environmental impact statement process is not only will it show that there might be significant impacts, but that somebody might sue and argue that the EIS is inadequate. And if it's inadequate, then we have to go back over and start again, which is a delay that affects the development schedule. It affects the interest of the private company in moving forward. And the concern is that if we have that kind of litigation, then we postpone to some future point or maybe never the actual development. So not only does the bill not make sure that tribes have the environmental capacity to protect themselves, but it actually shortcuts or short circuits or constrains the environmental review in the first place. So it's not going to highlight some of the negative consequences because it's on a shortened timeline. It's only available for review by tribal citizens and people who live in the affected area. So, for example, national organizations that have the scientific expertise and the technical expertise to help identify problems with the environmental impact statement, if that bill becomes law, those people don't get a chance to be involved because they're not members of the tribe or they don't live in the affected area. That puts a big burden on tribal grassroots organizations that are small, that don't have technical capacity, that might need the assistance of a national organization to help them make cogent comments, who might be in a position now not to get those resources, not to get that extra assistance, because the bill suggests that, well, the only people that really we care about are the people who live in the area, and it just turns out that none of them have the technical expertise to tell us what are the actual impacts of injecting uh, a carcinogenic toxic materials 10,000 feet underground after doing the fracking that allows us to get the oil out. Well, that puts the the tribal grassroots citizen who's concerned about cultural impacts in a no-win situation. And and that's that's what I think concerns me, Eugene, about the conversation is uh, uh, not only a lack of consideration for the environmental impacts, but almost a a dismissive reaction that, well, environmental stuff is slowing us down. It's not relevant to the conversation, which should all be about let's get the development going and let's do it as quickly as possible. Hmm. And to close this out, You've done some work uh, with First Nations, uh, particularly in Alberta. Could you speak to their experiences with resource development and what parts of that experience might be relevant to tribes in the United States? 
Yes, I was a, a Fulbright scholar at the University of Alberta in 2009, and I'm working on a paper right now focusing on um, what's called the constitutional duty to consult in Canada. So Canada's situation is quite different in the, in the U.S. in the sense that tribes in, in the United States are considered governmental sovereigns and have the ability, as we've been talking about, to implement environmental programs. In Canada, tribes have reserves, which are like reservations, but they're much smaller. They do have certain rights in what are called traditional territories to hunt and to fish and to trap, but they have no governmental power to set rules, regulations, water quality standards, for example, or to demand those kinds of things. But the Constitution of Canada says that before a, a province can act, it's got to consult with First Nations that will be affected. And so my argument is that right now, Alberta, as it's developing the tar sands, the the the, the it's a little bit like fracking, but not quite the same technology. But it's essentially a resource that is not a conventional oil pool that you can simply stick a well down and drill and, and, and suck up the oil. This is it's an intensive process that takes a lot of energy to take the oil resource out. And it has a tremendous impact in terms of generating wastewater, much of which is either intentionally or unintentionally being let into some of the fresh, the freshest water deltas in the world, some of the most productive migratory waterfowl uh, areas in the world are being affected. And that's, that's having an impact on Aboriginal people in Canada, just like environmental destruction is having an impact on Indigenous people in the United States. The, the difference is, is that the, really the only mechanism I see in Canada that's a legal mechanism is this concept that the province is supposed to consult with First Nations and the Supreme Court of Canada says to accommodate their interests in appropriate circumstances. So I'm trying to use the analogy of the treatment as a state model in the United States, where tribes in the United States have the ability to set their own environmental water quality standards, for example, or their own uh, uh, air quality standards. And, and to see if there isn't a way that in the consultation process, a First Nation could, say, demand a regular water quality monitoring or even to insist that a certain level of water quality be maintained. Because unfortunately, there's not much of a federal presence in the environmental realm in Canada. So the environmental quality monitoring, management, ins inspection, and enforcement is really left to the provincial level. And we saw in the 60s that doing that at the state level led to essentially a, a, a balance that tilted in favor of economic development and not environmental protection. That's what led in the 70s to the federal government stepping up and passing very stringent environmental rules and regulations that the states were forced to follow. Canada simply hasn't done that. It's left to each province the decision of when and how to regulate the environment. And unfortunately, what I see in Alberta is happening also in North Dakota and at the Mandan Hidatsa Arikra Nation in Fort Berthold, which is a focus on economic development, less concern about the back end of the cycle, and particularly in Canada where the indigenous people live in the far north, which is very rural, very undeveloped, and there are very few people there that the focus in Canada is really on the, on the big cities. It's on where the people are. 
And so the environmental impacts that are happening as a result of tar sands development is really only affecting a small number of people, and those people happen to all be indigenous people. And although I think that the Supreme Court of Canada and the Canadian government generally speaks with a different tone when it talks about respecting indigenous rights, different and better, if you will, than the United States, I think the reality is is that, unfortunately, like the United States, they're, they're focusing on where can we get the resources that provide the biggest benefit for the national economy, and not so much does that have a negative impact on the First Nations people who have traditionally occupied those territories. So I am concerned that although the analogy is a little bit different in Canada and the United States, the end result is the same that the majority society is benefiting from the energy resources that are found in indigenous territories. And the indigenous peoples are left to deal with the negative pollution impacts associated with the development that really affects their cultural heritage and may in some ways make it very difficult to sustain their cultural heritage over the long run. Wow. Well, thank you so much. This has been an incredibly informative conversation. I wish we had a lot more time. There's a lot more ground to cover. I agree. But, uh, but this already has been a real uh, gift. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Gene. Thank you for having me. All right. The views and opinions expressed by the interviewers and interviewees as part of On the Environment do not necessarily reflect the views of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, its affiliated faculty, staff, or supporters.